In Luke 14, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner on a Sabbath day. And in the chapter right before this, the Pharisees had warned Jesus about Herod trying to kill him, which is kind of like, huh, what's going on there? Like, are the Pharisees for him or against him? Sometimes they seem to want some kind of a positive relationship, but other times they can't stand him. But no matter what's going on, they always want to hang out and see what he's up to lately. As a general rule, the Pharisees were his biggest critics, but a few of them, like Nicodemus, came to him even in secret with authentic spiritual search rather than just an effort to trap him. So anyway, that sets it up, right? He's at the home of a Pharisee on the Sabbath day. That's what Luke tells us. And a man with dropsy shows up at the feast. And Jesus, being who he is and doing what he does, you already know what he's going to do, and so do they. Luke is careful to explain this little detail that the Pharisees were watching him closely to see what he would do. And we go, well, why? Why not just like live and let live? Go do your thing. You let Jesus go do his thing. You be happy over there. You let him be happy over here. No big deal. Why? Well, because he was ruining their thing. He was drawing their followers away from them to him. And that mattered to them because their identity was bound up in how other people perceive them. Not that they knew it, but their outrage reveals it. Their identity, like many of ours, is based more on how many followers they have and how those followers are perceiving of them lately. Their preaching was not like Jesus's. Their teaching wasn't like his. Their praying wasn't like his. Their character wasn't like his. Their evangelism wasn't like his. Their theology wasn't like his. Their emotional state wasn't like his. Their outlook and demeanor were not like his. And most importantly, as far as the people were concerned, their results were not like his. Like Jesus' prayers got answered. Their prayers simply sounded impressive, but his prayers got answered. His prayers affected change. They, they got some praying done. He He got some things done by praying. When they prayed, people listened. Wow, what a prayer. When Jesus prayed, the Father listened. Illnesses listened. Demons listened. So there's this saying, it's uh, you can't argue with results. And I wish it were true, but it's not. Uh, You can actually argue with results. You can argue with facts, truth, your own experience, reality itself you can argue with. And they did. And I guess that's why people call it playing the devil's advocate, because sometimes it literally is. Except it's not a game, it's real life, and we're fighting on the wrong side. So they said, oh, what you're doing, Jesus, is wrong. You're healing on the Sabbath. That's not right. That's not biblical. They said he must have made a deal with the devil. They said he's insane. He's deluded. They said, oh, he's a sinner. They questioned where he grew up. They threw his family under the bus. They claimed that the only reason the crowds were following him was because the crowds really didn't know the Bible and were under a curse. It's a classic, brilliant smear campaign, the kind of smear campaign that continues right down to this very day because it's effective. The courts may say that people are innocent until proven guilty, but emotionally, within the psychology of the average human, We don't have the energy to investigate whether everything that's being said is true, so we just kind of assume at an emotional level that where there's smoke, there's a fire. And at the very least, we assume that it's not good to stand too close to people who are being lined up in front of a firing squad. It's like, "Mm, I'll be over there, not so close. 
uh, anyway, dropsy, right? The guy shows up with dropsy. Dropsy is sort of a word for what now we call edema, swelling in the legs and the ankles and the feet. Sounds like no big deal, but it actually is like a big deal because it's often a symptom of heart disease, liver failure, kidney failure, so maybe some kind of infection or a severe allergic reaction. And it says Jesus heals him. Now, I don't know how something like that gets cured so quickly that they can see the immediate results, but he did. And there it is. He healed the man. Everybody saw it. And it happened at a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. It's like, oh, man, it's like getting caught smoking in the principal's office or jaywalking in front of the police station, except it's a good deed and they're not really the authorities. But still, in their minds, they are. Now, Jesus is, unlike us, not afflicted with an overabundance of polite decorum. He's not afraid of conflict. He's not afraid of contradicting people to their face or telling us straight up when we're wrong. And he's definitely not into submitting to our accountability or our feedback or our performance review. And even though he calls himself the servant of all, even when he is serving us, he is still in authority over us. And if you want evidence of what I'm talking about, Peter is very irate with the idea of Jesus washing his feet, but Jesus makes Peter submit to that. So even though Jesus is serving Peter, that does not put Peter in charge of how Jesus is serving him. And Jesus, unlike us, isn't measuring his ministry by how many followers he has. In fact, he usually tries to thin the crowds, not grow them, and he ups the intensity and strident nature of his unpopular messages accordingly to thin the crowd. He doesn't make decisions by consensus or vote. He doesn't consult his mission statement or his alignment. He doesn't pull a focus group together or look at his target audience. Instead, he often goes away alone in prayer, getting his marching orders and his clarity and his purpose from the Father, whom he says is the only one who actually knows who he is. And since the Father alone truly knows the Son, only the Father can tell the Son what's the next step. Now imagine if we walked through just some of what Jesus regularly walked through. I can imagine that instead of coming back to the prayer closet with a heart that's overflowing with gratitude to God because God healed, that God gave us insight, God gave us words, God gave us an answer to our critics, God gave us the courage to confront in love without resentment, I can imagine that instead of that, we might have self-pity for how we've been opposed and maybe rejected or at the very least, misunderstood. I can imagine that instead of coming back with gratitude, we might come back with resentment, that those people are still tracking us down. They're still chasing us down. They're still watching us and judging us and resisting us. And and I can imagine us experiencing self-doubt because their doubts about our integrity and motives have caused us to think about ourselves differently. Would we come back to the place of prayer feeling lost and confused, like our lives aren't turning out the way we expected, like the way we prayed? I suspect many of us would. And 
It would be on a day where we actually obeyed God and God was faithful. But even though we obeyed and God was faithful, we've not been able to draw the correct distinctions between what what belongs to God, what belongs to us, and what belongs to others. Another interesting expression I hear us use is a fall from grace. When someone has fallen from grace, what we mean is that they have lost their approval in the popular consciousness. Now, sometimes this is deserved and sometimes this is undeserved, but to say that someone has fallen out of favor is another way of saying they've fallen from grace. They've fallen out of favor. Now, it can happen because of their sins, finding the cold light of day. Now everyone knows. But it can also happen because of someone's righteousness. It just happens to cut against the grain of what the community wants lately. So sometimes, sometimes falling away from grace, right? A fall from grace is actually faithful. And what I mean is sometimes in order to please God, you have to displease people. You could say Jesus fell from grace in the same city where only a few days earlier they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Instead, now they're blurting out angry cries of, give us Barabbas. Well, then what should I do with this Jesus? Crucify him. Facing resistance, right? Facing disapproval, facing criticism, facing misunderstanding, rejection, friction, all that. It's not some anomalous thing that Jesus went through uh, so that we don't have to, right? That's often our theology of the cross is Jesus did that so we don't have to. I mean, it's, it's true. He died for sins. and We're not dying for sins. He did. However, he did model what the path of obedience to the Father looks like in a fallen world. What does it look like to live a life of love in a world like this one? looks like Jesus dying on a cross. Resistance, disapproval, criticism, misunderstanding, rejection, friction, conflict. Facing all that is not just some anomalous thing that Jesus went through so we wouldn't have to. No, 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 no. He didn't take the cross so we could take the lazy boy. He goes first as the pioneer and as the trailblazer so that we would know how to follow him. There are times when you can please God and please the people. But there are some times when it's not possible to please both God and people. And when that happens, please God. But do it without all the self-pity. <laughs> you are blessed. Your life is going amazing. <laughs> so lift up your eyes and rejoice in it. <laughs> <laughs>